With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success. And practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. As the announcer mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so you can call in. You can also join us in the chat room. You can ask questions there, or you can email me today at tedhart at tedhart.com. Any questions that you may have for our page two expert. As our regulars know, and for our new listeners, we uh, want you to know that we always start the show off with page one news. Each year I'm honored to be able to work with uh, the fine folks at Stephen Thomas in Toronto for the hosting of the Digital Leap Conference. Uh, this has become the centerpiece of technology training for nonprofit organizations in Canada. And here with us today is the President and CEO, Neil Galliford. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Ted. How are you? Good, good. The nonprofit coach is always very happy to help promote digitally because it has become such uh, an important uh, training session over the years. Um, give us a little bit of background about Digital Leap and then uh, let my listeners know how they can register. Yeah, sure. In fact, this is our uh, seventh annual Digital Leap. I can't believe we've been doing this for seven years. It's been successful every year. Yes, and uh, this year, well, I have to say, Ted, take the opportunity to say, may the fourth be with you. Uh, it's taking ah, place I think there's a meaning on, to that, isn't there? Yeah, <laughs> it's taking place on May 4th um, at our usual venue, the Art Gallery on Tyro, which is a fantastic venue. Um, it's going to be a great conference. We've sold out the last few years. Uh, it, it focuses, uh, it's a one-day conference. It focuses on digital uh, marketing, digital fundraising, uh, specifically for not-for-profit organizations, um, and it's about 150 to 200 people come and hear some some uh, serious experts in various uh, various kinds of digital uh, marketing. Over the seven years, this uh, conference has really become known as, you know, the most important conference for what is cutting edge and how to in the digital space. Um, I think that's become because of the fact that we always have such terrific speakers, but also there had been some other conferences in Toronto that did not uh, continue. Uh, and so now Digital Leap is uh, really the premier 
training opportunity for nonprofit organizations in the digital space. Yes, that's true, Ted, although it's uh, interesting. One of the changes I've seen over the seven years is uh, how uh, we're starting to see more senior people from uh, not-for-profits come as well as uh, as uh, uh, junior and intermediate people. So that's been an interesting trend, and I think that's, that's coming about because, on the one hand, there aren't a lot of opportunities uh, to, to go to such conferences, but there, there's also the quality of the conference itself. So we have some uh, amazing speakers every year, and this year is no uh, no exception. Um, so May the 4th uh, in Toronto, how can my listeners register for the conference? Is there still space? There is there is still space. Uh, and, in fact, uh, now, this is very timely, us uh, talking about it today, because the uh, – the uh, early bird uh, pricing is in effect till the end of the month, so they they actually have uh, what 22 days left to uh, to get the early bird pricing. Um, all they need to do is go to digitalleap.org, and uh, that'll that'll help them uh, find their way to Eventbrite, where they can register uh, and get tickets. So digitalleap.org is where folks can go and learn more about this. Obviously, no obligation to register, but if you want to secure your space in this conference that has sold out for the last few years, probably better from your employer's perspective to do that during the cheaper early bird period that goes through the end of this month. Yeah, and we pride ourselves on keeping the cost of the, prof, uh, the conference down. We uh, we get sponsors to help us with that. So, I mean, it's really good value, Ted. It's uh, about $200 a person, and that would be if you paid the whole uh, the the full full freight. If you register before March 31st, you can actually get uh, uh, a discount from there. And uh, uh, that's that's amazing because uh, especially if you bring uh, a friend, if you bring a friend, you get another ten dollars off. And if you bring uh, a group of people, which could be all from one organization or from different organizations, uh, would take another ten dollar uh, off each price. You could come for as little as a hundred and eighty dollars each. Well, and that's one of the things I really like about the Digital Leap Conference, and this goes back to the earliest days, is it's, it's had this concept of sort of team learning. Certainly you can come by yourself if you would like, but um, because the digital space uh, can be a little bit more complex and certainly um, tends to overlap several different disciplines within an organization, um, having yourself come with other members of your team or board members or volunteers, the pricing has always been set up to promote um, a discount for team learning either within the organization or across organizations. Now, that's absolutely true. And, you know, we're well aware that uh, responsibility for digital communications, digital marketing, digital fundraising is often uh, spread around in organizations. And so the website might belong to the communications department, whereas the fundraisers are in charge of fundraising. And, and so uh, I actually think the best thing to do if you're a fundraiser is go ask your your uh, communications uh, colleague to come with you to this conference. And if you're a communications person, you should go ask your fundraising colleague to come come and attend uh, with you, and I think that 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 will help you both uh, learn more and build bridges uh, to be more effective in your digital marketing. So Neil Galford, uh, President and CEO of Stephen Thomas uh, in Toronto, Digital Leap 2016 is on May the 4th, so very easy uh, for the geeks among us to remember that date so you can mark it down or just to remember that there's a, a Star Wars connection to, uh, to this year's uh, Digital Leap. Thank you for joining us today and helping us uh, promote Digital Leap 2016. Everyone, don't forget, go to digitalleap.org. Again, Neil, thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure, and may the 4th be with you, Ted. Absolutely, may the 4th be with you. Uh, and I think a very appropriate uh, segue to today's topic, uh, we have uh, Derek Feldman with us today, Social Movements for Good, How Companies and Causes Create Viral Change. So a nice connection uh, to Digital Leap as well uh, in terms of topic, and we're going to head right on over to our page two expert.
It is really my pleasure to welcome you here to uh, the Wiley radio show. John Wiley and Sons uh, promotes uh, with us the Wiley AFP series, um, and Wiley has published this new book, uh, Social Movements for Good, How Companies and Causes Create Viral Change. With us today is Derek Feldman. Uh, Derek um, is a highly sought-after speaker, researcher, and advisor for cause engagement. He is the lead researcher and creator of the Millennial Impact Project, Project, an off-sited multi-year study of how uh, ne the next generation supports causes, and the producer of MCON, a national uh, annual conference of more than 15,000 viewers that explores whether and how organizations are taking advantage of today's heightened interest in causes to create movements. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Derek Feldman. Thanks so much, Ted. Great to be here. Derek, this is really a terrific book and, of course, very timely. Um, what I wanted to do is, is actually just start out with your definition to kind of get the set the, the table here, if you will, on what is a movement so that we know um, exactly what part of sort of the digital space we're talking about. Yeah, it, it, there's actually a good story behind it because uh, as we were, and, and we're a research group, so our job is to try and understand why and how people do what they do with causes. And as we were looking at things, uh, it was it, we kind of got into this space of trying to understand, well, is this a marketing campaign or is this a real movement uh, in general? And because if you look at social movements in history and even social movements for good, which tend to be in the philanthropic nonprofit space, uh, we tend to see some activity that doesn't necessarily reflect what we would call a marketing campaign. And what that meant is social movements for good represent a, an opportunity for people to affect change with other people's personal interests to affect a larger population over a long period of time. And although the movements that we have seen, might, we might witness a short blip in time, like you know when it gets very popular or viral, it usually meant, though, is that that virality of that campaign was just a one piece of a larger grassroots swell of interest, activity, and action that had actually occurred. It was just the one thing that we remember of it uh, in general. So it was interesting to so look at the movements time are not necessarily movements are not necessarily grabbing headlines, um, but are broad-based. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and that's you know it's an interesting uh, it's an inter interesting to look at how a movement you know, moves it from nobody to virality, right? And in most of the movements that we felt were more marketing campaigns based upon this definition didn't have that groundswell that we had seen with other longer-term movements or policy change, social change, philanthropic change, and so forth. And so we had to make a clear distinction between the two. It's uh, it, it's interesting, of course, when when folks hear this topic, I think they immediately start thinking of uh, the ALS uh, challenge um, as a movement, and of course, sure, I would like to have one of those. Um, is that <laughs> something that you just get to have, uh, or is this much more complex than that? It, it it really is just much more complex. You know what 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 ended up happening with ALS, and we cover this in the book a little bit too is that, um, and, th and this happens with other movements that don't necessarily get to a status of, of what we think, there, there is uh, opportunities that happen in our cultural discourse, our discussions and things that make, them way in, that, that make our way into it, whether it's a campaign to do Hands Across America or to do things like ALS and so on. Um, those things tend to potentially disband quickly when there isn't that groundswell that's there. And, and we talk about some of the unsuccessful social movements, uh, and one of them being Bring Back Our Girls, which was a viral campaign that, have, that had happened. It was a hashtag and so forth. And, but there was no real action on the ground to make the virality of it actually mean something in the end. It, it changed our discussion for a day, and really there was a height of the discussion at one day, in particular in a certain time span, but it really didn't change it. And in fact, I mean, their girls are still in captivity. There wasn't the groundswell of action that was necessary. There wasn't the embedding of people to do more than just share in that moment. Sharing is imperative, 
but it has to be built upon a network of grassroots involvement, has to be built on what we call in the book a group of believers that go beyond just belonging to a movement. And we saw a lot of that with ALS, where we had a lot of people belong to it, but if you asked if they were actually believers in the movement of what ALS was doing, it would start to disband from there. And that was really the premise of the book, uh, Ted. We, we wanted to go out and not only talk to the founders of these movements, we had to talk to the people that really participated in this to see if the visions really matched up. And most of the time it didn't. And our mo- movements, I, this is something I've, I've always sort of struggled with, and, and as, as the expert, I'm sure you can make sense for me. Are, are movements specific to a charity, or do they transcend an organization? It definitely transcends an organization. The charities tend to be the ones that are the organizers of it, but it definitely goes well beyond it. And, you know, for instance, if you take the human rights campaign movement that had happened in the United States last year and still is in existence um, around gay and marriage and equality, all of that movement had been built upon a groundswell of many organizations, including HRC, which was doing it. And even in the ALS situation where... You, this, the, the Ice Bucket Challenge was not created by ALS. They were the recipients of it. It was created by one person who uh, used its network correctly and started to create that, that piece for it. So this, this, is where, this is where it kind of gets into a larger discussion of who owns a movement, right? And uh, it, it was interesting that during our discussions with the founders of these movements, one thing was very clear. At some point, they kind of gave up on their complete vision of what it was. They let the population determine where it goes and how it will be. And I, I talk about this with the ALS piece where when they tried to brand or be a part of it, there were some definite uh, challenges to, to associating. Even they tried to trademark it and do some other things there. And so it, it, when a movement is successful is when the people rise above what the institution is, and it becomes much more relative to the issue and the environment that happens. That's because they believe, in it, and then they essentially own it from there. And that's the continuum that we talked about, where the individual becomes a belonger of it to a believer to an actual owner of it, making it themselves, and the institution, just an organization and charity, becomes the outlet. And, and isn't it true in, in a lot of the the examples that, that you have, um, or, or maybe it just seems that this is the case, that when the charity tries to own it, define it, they squash it? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, there uh, a lot of the charities are probably looking for awareness and virality and all these other things. And, 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 and when they try to be the one, you know, to kind of puff up their chest a little bit and say, like, we're, we're the ones that brought you this, or this, this is who it is, it becomes about the organization and less about the person who's supposed to be creating change, right? So mm-hmm. it's saying to the donor, thank you for your money. We are going to use it this way. Well, that message doesn't, is not as strong as when you say to the donor, we value you. You are imperative. Your dollars made the beneficiary better didn't make the organization stronger. That's a secondary outcome, right? The, the primary outcome is the beneficiary is help. That individual you are helping in this moment because of you rather than because of the work that we get to do. I think this book is, is so important, and I, and I really do hope that nonprofit leaders and volunteers read it. But I, I, I almost wonder if in reading it they can actually understand it uh, because this is a topic that we've often discussed um, here on this show um, because I'm, I'm, I'm asked on a pretty regular basis um, because of you know, my involvement from you know, the earliest days of the use of the Internet for nonprofits, how has the Internet changed um, the philanthropic landscape? And, and I think that it actually has brought it back to its roots. Um, is because the and, and just hear me out and see if see if you think this is right or wrong and and that's okay uh, either way but I I think that you know where philanthropy started were communities of people who came together around a cause something that they cared about and they wanted to make a difference what came after that movement very early on in in our human existence was the notion of an organization a charity some sort of corporate entity that would then sort of carry 
carry on that that mission. And of course, any entity that comes into existence, uh, while it cares about a mission, cares first and foremost about its own bottom line, its own existence, and its own future. And I think what the internet has done, which is which is good for some charities who either sort of stumble upon it or actually understand it, um, but is is troubling to a lot of charities is that it's not about them. And that's awfully difficult for charities, boards of directors, staff, to understand that it's not about them, that people don't actually give to charities, they don't give to corporate entities um, that are known as charities or nonprofits or NGOs, but they give to a cause or a mission that they care about. And it's incidental that there may be um, some staff or some organization that is sort of housing that or, or fostering that, because someone who really wants to make a difference would just as easily move to another group that's doing very good work or, or innovative work. And what the Internet has done is made it possible uh, for, as, as you point out, uh, companies and causes um, to actually exist in their natural state, uh, which is a movement as opposed to a charity. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that as a framework. 100% agree. And that's exactly, I, I talk about that uh, in the book, that you know, it's the early 1900s where a lot of the biggest brands in the charity world were formed. And there was a committed group of people that came together and really, really desired to affect the population. And over time, it got professionalized. And it doesn't mean that I'm against professionalization or, you know, fundraisers and so forth. But what's interesting is, is that, that the individual desires that ability to go back to a root or an environment that says, well, let me be with the people that care just like me about this issue, and let me be a part of that. And sometimes that's hidden by our ability to treat people as individuals in our, in our, uh, in our ecosystem rather than using technology to band people together around a common issue. And when you allow technology to band people around a common issue rather than, the, rather than the entity, you start to see the community deepen their emotional involvement and investment and their charitable interests over time. And that's a great opportunity. And we, we lose sight of this ability to help people self-organize. We almost feel like all of the time the nonprofit marketer has to be queuing every single action at every single moment in, in history for the cause and for the, non, for, the, for the entity. But in reality, marketers and fundraisers should be supporting up the, group, or the, the goals of the groups and of the individuals who want to be a part of our issue that we address. I think that one of the best statements to think about it in terms of marketing and messaging is that you can always get a movement going or at least a population of people together. You start with a belief statement and you know, saying that you know, we believe that this individual needs to have water or this, this, is, this is not right or this is – those belief statements separate causes and issues very quickly rather than asking the general population to say, um, you know, you should support us because we're a C3 and our board is better than yours, which essentially is kind of messaging that sometimes comes out unintentionally, but that's what it kind of feels like towards the population. So I agree with you, and we continue to see that in our data and our research and, and everything else, that, that people want to be with other people who want to address an issue that they care deeply about. They want to share that belief with others. They want to use technology to use that as a form of expression. And they want to use technology to self-organize, continue to do small groups, uh, things together, whether you're for a university or whether you're for a hunger organization or whether you're for something else. These are all opportunities for an individual to, to be together with other like-minded people. Technology affords that to us. Where technology, I feel, has also um, at times let us down is when we use technology to only focus on the individual action cued from the organization at every waking moment. You couldn't possibly do that in, for, for long periods of time and expect a movement to build where people feel like they own it. What they're doing is just reacting to what you're doing. Are you still there, Ted?
Ted, are you still there? Oh, sorry about that. I was rambling on and, and uh, didn't uh, uh, have the, the speaker on, so I apologize. Um, so uh, that's why that's why I was um, when I wrote the book People to People Fundraising. That was the earliest days of helping nonprofits um, understand that putting themselves at the center is not the pathway to success, but putting the donor at the center, which has always been the centerpiece of successful uh, philanthropy. So when I start off today, the the question that that I I wanted to pose to you is, as I said, I hope that nonprofit executives and volunteers and others who are involved with charities that truly want to succeed in the digital space will read your book. But can they understand your book? Um, Because this disconnect you know, a, a decade, more more than a decade and a half later uh, from some of the earliest days of this is still a mystery for most nonprofits because they want to be able to own the donors. They want to be able to count the donors. They want them in their database. And it's still, for a lot of folks, matters more how many emails they send out than really inspiring action on behalf of their organization. So how how do you help nonprofits, big and small, understand the central important aspect of a movement versus a charity? Yeah, at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of the book, I spend time talking about one crucial element to a lot of this, which is empathy. Empathy in our emotional response to charity and helping others. And from there, because empathy is so important, right, when you see imagery and you see messaging that comes out, and you wonder, well, why did I participate in that? Well, it was the it was the right thing in that moment that hit the impulse, right? So I help people understand from the beginning that there's a lot of actions that people take that are thoughtless behavior that we just do. That's liking things and, and so on and so forth. I mean, we really want the population at all times to be incredibly thoughtful in all of their philanthropic decision-making. But that also means that we're removing the empathy and emotion that we tend to have at times in this space. And that's hard because we're human. So I talk about that empathy piece, and then I quickly move into, let me show you what this means. Because I think, and we live in an environment today to say, well, you should better engage your donors. You should better do this. Or we need to, we need to talk about donor-centered environments or donor-centric messaging. But it's hard to really understand what that is. And it's hard to know that when we use the words like we or us, um, or even when we do things like where we go to our donors and say, do you know this? In the end, you know, we're already setting us apart from them. We're already pushing ourselves away and saying, it's you and then it's us. It's, it's you and then the other people are over here and so on. And so I help to, in the book, show how messaging, even in small things like using the word you and starting out with belief statements and other kinds of things begin to shift the way we start to think about nonprofit work and charities and movements rather than saying to ourselves, I am only going to focus on uh, the call to action I need to create. I got to do 20 emails this year. This email is going to be around this topic and so on. And I also think that in the book, probably one of the best, uh, best chapters is to understand what happened in the digital space when it comes around the conversation of causes and social issues. You, we expect and want people to talk about the things that we want to talk about. I always like this when somebody says, hey, Derek, uh, will you go do this and then share our hashtag? Well, maybe that's not the hashtag I want to share. Maybe it's something else, right? And so I, I, we talk about in the hashtag activism piece that, that when you ask people to do certain things, you're asking them to do things for you. And we forget that the first step is doing it for themselves and doing it for the people that they desire to help. And then it can be for you, too, as well. And so taking people through that, I think, is a, is a really good, good piece. That also means that's the difference from a marketing campaign to a social movement, which involves people right. working with other people in the same issue. And, that, and at the beginning, right. I really differentiate between a social movement and a social movement for good in that space. 
Right. One of the most difficult things, I think, for nonprofit organizations who, you know, they're listening today and they're like, yes, yes, I would like to do that. And that's, you know, we've been working on that for a while and we've only had limited success. I think, you know, going to the root of the problem generally is that nonprofit organizations who desire to make use of or sort of commandeer social media for their own exam- for their own good or their own means um, are not truly prepared to be social themselves because there is yep. an, an inherent fear that if I put myself out there and, and where I usually go when I'm when I'm lecturing is is uh, you know, people will say, well, you know, if we put things online or we allow people to comment, you know, they'll say something mean or they'll say something untrue. Um, and, and it occurs to me that charitable organizations feel very thin-skinned and are really not prepared uh, to answer criticism or to answer those who they want to support them. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have an interesting case study in in the book where I talk about Liberty in North Korea as an organization that's been very successful at helping individuals self-organize around the movement of refugee resettlement um, from North Korea. And what's interesting about it, their creative director said, at first, uh, uh, our community manager, and they have a a community manager, and and what's interesting about the role of a community manager is typically involving or who oversees social media engagement, social conversations, email, and so on. A really great community manager will stick up in a staff meeting and say, "We're about ready to send something that no one's going that I know our community will not respond to, and it won't happen." And one of the things he said is that, you know, we have a community manager that's of the people that support us and of the people that provide us time and other resources. Our community manager isn't one just responsible for sending out 20 emails. Our community manager is of the community that's behind the movement that we've created. And that's the kind of person we should be hiring rather than just some person mm-hmm. that can execute a post, you know, social media plan. Secondly, he right. made another interesting comment too, which is, you know, he was, from a creative director standpoint, he was very cautious about allowing anybody to do anything with their brand, right? So he, um, he said one of the things the community managers and others uh, came to him is say we work on college campuses. Why don't we start to allow the college campuses to do some stuff with their lo- with our logo? That goes against every brand guideline you could ever imagine, and they did right. it anyway. And what ended up happening is, yes, yeah, some took it and took it into wild, great places. They added their own college logo to it. They added all this. They made it their own. And to them, the movement was their own. And versus others. The, the passion for helping the issue is at an all-time high versus had, them, had they gone back to that group of people and said, here's our brand guidelines, only use it like this. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that everybody's got to give up brand entity because their core values were incredibly strong and their purpose and who they were. But here's an example where our rigidity at times can get in the way of people owning something that we want to be a part of it. And and that's really the the crux of it, I think, for a lot of charities who, you know, are, are either not making great strides or are really still paralyzed because they they see the outcome, they want the outcome, but they're not willing to do the work with a community to be part of a community to actually make it work. And and you can't disconnect those, right? I mean, you you know, one of the things I always say is, you know, if if you want to be successful in social media, what you have to be prepared to do is to be social, and that is one of the hardest things for charities to do. I think I think that's unfortunately been the uh, an outcome of our professionalization in the field is our removal of that that sense of this is about you know who we are. And, and what happens and, and so forth. I, I mentioned in the book that uh, there are there are other companies too. And one of the best uh, one of the best interviews I did in time I spent was with with Kim, who is the head of New Belgium Brewery. She's just recently um, retired, but New Belgium Brewery is a brewery in the United States. The Fat Tire is a very popular beer as well. And she made a really interesting comment because I asked her. I said, Why do you do all of this stuff in the community? And she, New Belgium has created their own movement uh, as well. They created a movement in Fort Collins. They created some other things in which that 
there that to try and help a population of people because it was important to them. And I said, well, why do it, right? You should be just selling beer. And she said, no. She said, if we care about, if we care about selling beer, we've got to care about the individual who consumes it, the things that they live in, the environments that they're a part of. Our employees need to be a part of those. That, you know, our marketing team needs to be of that population. Our fundraisers, the too. We need to be not removed from but a part of. And I think that's where we get really into we are going to be an entity and we are going to be removed and ask people to respond to our request. But yet if we were part of that community, it probably wouldn't be something we would do. And the only way that we can truly create movement is that when we're a part of it, like we are of the authentic population that believes in the same work that we're trying to get everybody to support. And I well, think that, and that's that, part of the issue is being authentic, right? That you know, what, what the, the I often share about being involved in the online space is that they will sniff out a phony very quickly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we saw that really, you know, it's very interesting to look at, um, to, to, to look through things where we would have uh, messaging that we get low response rates on something versus not, and it seems so inauthentic, right? Um, you know, where we, where the organization might place value on things that the individual doesn't necessarily place value on it. Um, individuals place high value on belief statements and issues they care about. The people that surround them, the immediate area in which that they live and work and play. But those, so all of these things are valuable things. And then all of a sudden, nonprofit sends a message or tries to do something digitally, where none of those value propositions, and it just becomes about them. It's very challenging. Again, going back to it's all about the charity um, and not necessarily um, about the uh, uh, about the movement that everyone says that they w- they want and they desire and would like to have you know benefiting their organization. Uh, so we're going to take uh, Derek just to take a, a very quick station break here. Um, when we come back, I'm going to ask you to talk about the power of peers um, and going back to a concept I've shared on, on this show many times, the, the power of people reaching out to people. Um, and it may be orchestrated by a nonprofit, but this, the nonprofit is not necessarily at the center of, again, your concept of the movement. And we will be right back after this break. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? We all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtue, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtue is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Get your calendars out. Just a, uh, a quick update here. Um, due to travel, the nonprofit coach will be on hiatus for the next two weeks. So a good time to catch up with our hundreds of free podcasts available at tedhart.com. We will be live here on the nonprofit coach on Tuesday, March 29th at 12 noon Eastern. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're live here with Derek Feldman, the author of the terrific new book, Social Movements for Good, How Companies and Causes Create Viral Change. Uh, Derek, when we went on uh, the break, I I wanted to come back and and have you help my listeners understand the power of peers. 
Absolutely. Well, we, you know, this this ability, and especially we're seeing this with millennials and others, this this interest in self-organizing around issues, right? So how can I bring my group of people together to value and care about and, and, and express that belief statement that we had? What's really interesting about the, the peer piece that we continue to discover in our own research and, and in others is, you know, we have um, a crowd environment, really two kinds of crowd environments. We have a crowd environment of four to six people that will get us to purchase things, get us to involve ourselves in charities, and get us to do things in general because they have a very high rate of our interest and value in some way. So this is your family, your friends, your closest network, right? These are the people that Facebook, of course, the algorithm works to constantly be in front of you uh, as well. We also have another crowd, and that's the larger movement crowd, right? So imagine yourself participating in ALS or all these other things because every, you know, uh, the population is also doing it. That's where we start to get to some of the movement pieces. Even everyday stuff that you do, the peers tend to influence consistently our decisions, and including our decisions to get involved in charity. I mean, 78% of the millennials that we've been studying over our research have consistently got engaged with charitable causes because of leverage or peer involvement in general. And in addition to that, we find a couple key things in the peer space. One, first and foremost, is that usually the millennial is or individual that's participating in this uh, these movements, they're really interested in getting their closest people to help support them. Um, it's not for everybody to go out and get massive amounts of people. They usually are challenged once they get their closest friends involved. And you have to ask yourself, why do so many people stop at getting four to six people involved? Because that tends to be our closest network, and it tends to be the belief support system that they need uh, consistently. When they then go outside of those four to six, they either might try experimenting with it because obviously some of their friends maybe came on early and so on. We see them start to move beyond that and be successful when they honestly have the support from the organization to do so through resources, through different types of things like tools and imagery and so on. But in addition, they've moved beyond just doing it for themselves. They're now doing it for the broader issue as well. And so peer engagement is very influential in the cause space, um, probably one of those key things that we need to continue to, to grow and use peer engagement as a stepping stone to get people to become not just belongers of movements, but to become believers and helping people transform out of that, just doing it for personal reasons to doing it for the issue as well. One of the things that, that I've shared on this show many times is what I call the Aunt Mabel effect. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're looking at your, your email uh, and you go and you open up your, your email box, probably the first thing you do is you go through and delete all the email that you have no interest in, in reading. So you've already um, sort of decided about those before you even open them. Uh, and then you're left with sort of your short list of those emails that you're going to read. And because you care about causes, there's an email from a cause that you care about, but there's also an email in there from your Aunt Mabel. And the question is, which one are you going to read first? And I think it goes back to your, your concept of authenticity, um, is that you're going to read that email from Aunt Mabel because she's authentic to you. She's someone that has a connection to you. And, and that's the core of sort of people-to-people fundraising, uh, working through peers, um, is that there's so much noise out there. There's so many emails, so many social messages, so many places that people are bombarded with information. They tend to retreat to those that they feel are authentic, those people that, that they believe in or trust in the message, and those oftentimes are people who are closest to them, their peers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we see it in, in the movement pieces in general, too, where when we would look at fundraising campaigns that would include peer-to-peer, we would see obvious connections to the four to six people all the time. I mean, it was very consistent across the board that four to six people will highly influence you in the tra- cause and charity space. And then once they started to move past that and do things, the or individual had to transform themselves, become not becoming comfortable with going out and getting a lot of people they didn't necessarily know to be a part of this. 
and being comfortable with expressing themselves towards that, towards an outside group. What's also interesting in the peer place that as as we've done the research is that the the interest of the individual uh, who's organizing or who's the peer fundraiser or who's the peer marketer trying to spread a message that at the beginning their whole their whole thing is just to get people to show support their network just to show that they care as well and so when you when you ask peer fundraisers or peer marketers to do things in which that the network of that peer fundraiser would never do and because it seems so extreme, you're already setting up a bad campaign. For instance, you might say, well, we want every peer fundraiser to go out there and raise $700. Reality, it's going to be much more in the 200 to 300 range. And, and we look at this incrementally, right? So we say to ourselves, I think I can, you can do like 200 or 300 because it feels possible. And I know that my committed group would show their support for me, so therefore I'm going to go do it. Then the next question is, how do you take those people and move it from two to 300 to 500 to 700? And typically it's incrementally by saying, great, you just hit your 300 goal. Let's go to 320. Let's go to 350. It hasn't been, we need you to do all of this because it feels uncomfortable. It feels inauthentic, like it may not be what it is. Right. And and in doing that, um, how do you inspire people who are connected? Because I think people are more cautious because there is a connection, and you can't just co-opt someone's network. You have to truly inspire them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the – it was interesting. I noticed this in the book, too, is that a lot of the, the belongers, believers, owners thing that, that we talk about is the fact that we have – this is where technology can really help us. When we look at the population of people that might like our organization and social networks like Facebook or others, or who might share things, that's a breeding ground for opportunity for us to find the believers in who we are in, in that population, to ask them to become a peer supporter of going forward. That's where we spend time advertising against them to say, you know, if you believe in this, here's a way that you can show it. Step up and raise 100 bucks now or something like that. So really the activity, the, the actions that occur in technology, all of those are a funnel system to get to the population that will go out and get the, get the resources from friends and networks. We need those. We need that funnel. You know, one, uh, one organization that I highlight in the book has a system that says, you know, we track actions, premium actions, and then catalytic actions. And those people that are in the premium, you know, that their actions might be liking and so on. Their regular, their regular premium actions might be that they submit their own content or information or they create their own posts and so forth. And a catalytic action is they give us an email or they, give us, or they sign up to do something. Each one of those varied levels of constituent involvement has a cl- is a clear opportunity to progress the individual from belonging a little bit or pseudo-affinity to actually performing more. And that's the systems we've got to use technology to help us create and not an expectation that everybody's just going to do something virally. Well, and, and of course, you know, the, the viral nature of all of this is what moves it beyond the charity itself, right? I mean, there, it's just not possible for a charity to have all the names that it needs to truly succeed in a movement in its own database. Yeah, you know, it's funny, when I sat down with Scott Harrison, who, uh, with Charity Water, obviously most people know them quite well, they're very successful, he said that I didn't think I was successful because I only had a million donors. <laughs> Everybody else is like, wow, I'd love to have a million donors, that would be success for us. He thought he'd be at 10 million and so on. Um, but but it's true, you know, the, it, it, it's an interesting piece because what I started to notice is that People that some of the movements or organizations that tended to fail early on were those organizations that really focused on a lot of institutional. They weren't about people, right? They weren't about going from people to other people to get the believers and so forth. It was really about going after some big grants, getting started, and then hopefully it would work out. And later on, they would always say, we'll focus on individuals. But it never really happened. If you look at some of the biggest successful charities today, they all started with a mentality of organizing a group of believers who knew that, that, they, that, that we're going to spend more time and resources. And this is a really key thing. Even, and I highlight this in the book as I did interviews with the founders of the movement. They were very clear in the beginning to say, 
I would they would go to family and friends and say, I, I really am looking for people who believe in this issue because I need you. Now, I need everybody, but right now in this formative time, I really, really need those that are passionate and who truly care about this because I know that you'll be the ones to stick it out over the, you know, the, the next couple months with me to a point where we can get the belongers as well. That's a key thing that right. we forget that these founders didn't necessarily just all of a sudden just had virality happen. They were very selective in the beginning to get the true people that believed in them. Then the viral piece happened later. Right. Well, you're not going to get to a viral movement without true believers. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not. It's, and not, it's not just a matter of working your database and having enough emails go out. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that we we get enamored with this with this notion that we have to have you know uh, these this five thousand people represent this in our in our email base. And but yet I I love to hear in marketing meetings they'll say well, tell me how you know that information and they really don't. You know, it's like this false sense of this these, this email that exists um, where they might have taken a pseudo action and they haven't done more. But we need the amount of people to act consistently over the years. Um, we have noticed, and uh, I write about this again in the book too, is that people go through a, a sequence of learn, act, give, where people learn quickly about a charity or social issue in some way, perform a small action before they give some asset that they find valuable. When we transcend that and focus more on the end product, which is a transaction of itself, we forget that the individual needs to act and self-absorb it before they get even further. And that's why when you see people who do small acts, some people will say, well, slacktivism and all these other kinds of things, is it valuable? It is. We need that. We need people to perform. We need people to continue to act for the issue because, it's, because that will reinforce their care for it. And then we also need that help for organizations to look at people who are out there that show some interest. You know, whether or not a tweet is going to save the world shouldn't be our question. It should be how do we use a tweet from somebody who has an interest in changing the world to do something more for our issue and cause. Right, right. And that, and that's I, I, I want to come back to sort of the, the, the question or the problem that I posed at the beginning of the show today, and that is, can people read this book and truly understand it when you may be coming from the perspective of, you know, email is nothing more than electronic direct mail um, and tweets are something that you send out yourself but don't necessarily generate. It's this central core mission of inspiring empathetic action that you have to understand if you're going to start a movement large or small. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's one there's one central discussion that should be happening in marketing meetings, and maybe after you pick up the book and so on, others will do this. And I say this in there at the end is you should all go back to your organizations and say, what do we believe is important for our issue, and what is happening right now, and do the people around us that support us, that give us time that are advise us and all that believe that same thing. And if you can't answer the question, you truly don't know how you're going to create a movement going forward. You're just stuck in a rut of activity, not equaling achievement. And so we're at a place today where we have so many tools, technology tools at our disposal. We've got to do some reflection and say to ourselves, what do we believe in and does our population believe the same thing? And if they do, fantastic. We'll use technology to reinforce that. If they don't, we have a lot of groundwork we need to do to get there. Right. Technology is incidental to the movement. I mean, it certainly can make it larger. It can make it more viral. And we have tools uh, available at our fingertips that we've never um, had available as an organization before. But in, in the olden days, that used to be knocking on doors. That used to be community potluck dinners. That used to be, again, people working together towards a cause and talking to their neighbors. That was viral. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think this goes to the larger discussion of how people get involved with causes today. And this isn't about millennials or versus boomers. It's about anyone that wants to show interest and move along a continuum of support. What are you going to do for the person, no matter how old they are, whether you're 80 and you happen to share a tweet and say, I love hunger, 
to you're 24 and you say, I love hunger. What are you going to do with that person to move them from becoming uh, a belonger to a believer and then owning it? We can't let the tool drive the strategy when the strategy is should be well, we need to engage anybody that cares about this issue. We happen to be the organization that's going to address it. Well, you brought up the issue of, you know, is this only a millennials thing, which I think is all too easy to say, well, it's, you know, it's technology, it's Snapchat, it's Twitter, it's Facebook. So therefore, it must only be for younger people. But I'm I'm sure you're familiar with the research of Penelope Burke, who we have on the show on a regular basis. And her research shows that the nonprofit charitable organizations have to understand that donors of all ages are using the Internet and expect to be able to use the Internet and not having a strong strategy of how you're going to engage them means that you are going to lose donors. Not gain donors, you are going to lose donors. Yeah, and this is – I I had picked up, unfortunately, an article that was in a recent fundraising magazine that said the the fundraising brawl, boomers versus millennials. And I was like, you know, I'm challenged that we're having a discussion about – whether I should pay attention to a millennial or whether I should pay attention to a boomer. The conversation should be is how are we going to bring interest into action, action into support, support into self-organizing, and further for anyone. And if Mm -hmm. we don't do that or if we don't create the support mechanisms to make that happen, we're never going to get to the place where we really, really want to be. And I hope that as we look at this book or we look at others, we start transcending the conversation away from populations of people to this is about people acting and how do we get people to care from a state of disinterest or non-caring at this moment to caring more. Exactly. Exactly. We have uh, about four minutes left. Uh, these types of shows always go so fast because they're so incredibly fascinating. I want to make sure that you cover uh, any remaining topics in the book that you want my uh, listeners uh, to make sure that they focus on when they buy the book, um, but also make sure that you share with my listeners how they can reach you. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I think most of the listeners would be interested in is the the movement social movement leader qualities that we exhibited through all of our studies. And uh, it's interesting because actually one of the first things is ignore technology in the beginning. Use your ability to attract people and get people, your believers, together and getting them to act um, in, in person as well as online before you start pushing even further. The other qualities, you know, there's about eight of those that are in there, talk about humbleness, and empathy, and it also talks about how these leaders were really masterminds on on the story that they would tell to get people to believe too. So make sure that that that, that happens in there. Um, I, I I also end uh, this uh, the book with an area that talks about what does this mean for the future? Where does this go? And here is what we started to notice is, is that doing good is at the peak of its popularity. I mean, everybody wants to do good. And we've got a lot of really great institutions and organizations, like a lot of your listeners, who have years of history of institutional knowledge on how to address needs of the people that they serve. What we don't want to have happen is we become so self-immersed that the organizations and the knowledge and everything that they have, unfortunately, doesn't speak to anybody in the future, right? Because we need everyone to address any issue, and we need the organizations today that exist to be there to provide the solutions and the needs for others. We have to break down the barrier between the people that support and the people that we serve and not view them uh, not view them completely at arm's length, but rather we embrace everybody together and allow them to own it um, from there. It's a cultural change that will take some time, but it's a change that's necessary, and it's going to force us all to change because it's so easy to do good today. And it's so easy to do good with my friends and my family, with or without a cause. And let's, let's resurface the real reason why we need these organizations, which is their ability to really make things happen for the people they serve. Let's not lose sight of that. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, Therese, You've done an outstanding job today. 
Yeah, how can they reach oh, you? Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I want to make sure that we share how folks can reach you. Sure. Um, so they can reach me on Twitter, obviously, at Derek Feldman. You can find out all of the research that we've been doing with the Cates Foundation at TheMillennialImpact.com. And then you can find more about the research that we do in general um, at AchieveGuidance.com. And I'm simply Derek at AchieveGuidance.com. That's terrific. Derek Feldman, a terrific book, very, very timely. Again, uh, I encourage all my listeners to get the book Social Movements uh, for Good, How Companies and Causes Create Viral Change, and to read it very carefully and to try to put it in the context of understanding how important this is to the future of your organization. It's not just about headlines and creating large movements, but understanding the central nature of how donors want to connect with movements and not necessarily with charities. And that's a very important topic that I think every charity needs to grapple with if they're going to be successful in the future. Derek, thank you for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. Absolutely. Thanks, Ted. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.